Welcome. This is Michael Volkoff, and this is episode 58 of Corruption, Crime, and Compliance. Our episode today is an interview of Donna Bohm, a leader in the compliance community. Our topic today is the Independent Empowered Chief Compliance Officer. Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining me today on Corruption, Crime, and Compliance, a podcast focused on the legal and compliance industry. Well, today I'm really excited to welcome Donna Bohm. Uh, Donna is an internationally recognized authority in the field of organizational compliance and ethics with over 20 years experience designing and managing compliance and ethics solutions in the U.S. and globally. As the principal of Compliance Strategists, LLC, she has advised a wide spectrum of private, public, governmental, academic, and nonprofit entities. And thank you, Donna, for making yourself uh, available. It's great to have you. And as everyone knows, she's my mentor, and it's it's a real honor to have her here. Thank you, Mike. Great to be talking to you. So, Donna, everybody knows you are the tireless advocate for the compliance profession. And I know it's been a long struggle, and you and I always talk about this, but can you sort of give us an assessment of where we are today on the on the issue of, and in particular, the issue of the empowered independent chief compliance officer? Uh, yes, Mike. We I would say that we are in very good shape. Uh, a lot of the discussion and debate over the last 10 years has brought us to where we are now, which is having defined our profession and defined uh, our practices, good hard work of all the people in our profession, we've now established the chief compliance officer as a, as a much-needed uh, executive in the C-suite, which has its own separate subject matter expertise, separate from legal. Um, and that means that uh, the CECO is now recognized as an independent executive uh, and is empowered by companies that are serious about compliance to really do their job well. We're in good shape. We're, we're, we're in a new era, I would say, of, of Compliance 2.0, where companies, policymakers, regulators are beginning to understand uh, what's needed for a compliance program and the compliance professionals who are managing that program, designing it and managing it. Um, are empowered and independent and and are structured within the organization to do their job well. And and how and you mentioned first in terms of de- I want to define what we mean by an empowered independent CCO. And the first thing you mentioned was that they are in the C-suite. And by being in the C-suite, what does that you know, include in terms of their empowerment and independence? Why is that so important to, you know, how you define it? Well, when we look at uh, compliance, we are looking for uh, a department, a function which is which has a seat at the table. Being at the C-suite, reporting to the CEO, uh, means that the compliance uh, program has a seat at the table where important issues are discussed, and decisions made that by the company, and that's a critical piece of 
of the compliance governance model that we've been talking about. And there's a term that you use, and if you can explain it a little bit more, you often refer to a term like uh, line of sight. And what does that mean in terms of a CCO uh, and in terms of their ability to do their job? Okay. Well, when we look at the features of a compliance 2.0 CICA role um, and by extension the compliance program itself, we're looking at the key features of independence, empowerment, line of sight, seat at the table, and resources to do the job well. By line of sight, um, and I've, I've done a specific column on this, uh, we're talking about the um, compliance uh, program and compliance professionals having uh, access to all the key information in the company concerning risk and insight into the business, having a line of sight to all the areas of risk um, that are addressed by the compliance program. Um, so ra- it's really a matter of knocking down silos and really having a direct line of sight into different areas of risk. Um, and also having a line up to the board of directors or the governing body that's unfiltered by any other executive. So it goes both ways, line of sight. Well, and that raises a, an interesting issue because, um, you know, Donna, I still hear from people who are chief compliance officers, and they may not get access to the board on a quarterly basis to report. You know, I was talking to somebody who reports to the board twice a year in person. Uh, And explain why, and and one of the things I advise clients is you've got to be in there at least, you know, once a quarter, and you have an executive session as well. And right. What's your concern? I mean, and, and I like the way that you use line of sight in terms of into the boardroom as well. Yes. Yes. Um, and I think the uh, the Justice Department has recognized the significance of unfiltered access by the chief compliance officer to the board. So I think that's, that's pretty clear. You're right. My practice really is uh, now recognized as quarterly reporting to the board. I like to see scheduled, uh, scheduled definitive dates of quarterly reports by the CICA to the board, and for and as you say, ex- in executive session. Um, ideally, there's an exec- executive session portion of that where, you know, the management is excused and it's just a direct line between the compliance officer and the and the board, and that's what we call unfiltered by any, any other executive. Uh, so that's really the best practice is that the compliance officer has a quarterly reporting up to the board and also has a, probably some ad hoc reporting obligations. So that if the company has uh, escalation provisions, which we usually recommend, uh, of areas that the board is most concerned are automatically, uh, automatically escalated to the board, then when items in that category arise, the compliance officer is required to give notice directly to the board. And that can be by email. It can be by a phone call. Um, it's to make sure that there is no, that there is rapid movement of certain categories of issues to the board. 
Yeah, that's a great, that's a great idea. I, I, one question that also comes up in, and I like the way that you use the term unfiltered is, um, do you think it's a best practice for a CECO to have um, a compliance committee within, you know, below the board, obviously, within, you know, with key stakeholders as part of it that the CECO would chair, in a sense, the compliance committee, ethics and compliance uh-huh. committee? Do you think that's something that's valuable and do you think that helps the independent and empowered um, CECO? Yes, I do. I think that that's very important. Um, there's some provisos on that, and I've written a column on this because I think a lot of compliance committees are are built wrong, and they should only empower and support the compliance program, not become a a uh, you know a, a micromanager of the compliance program or of the compliance officer. So I do think that. It's useful, and I've seen this work very well, that compliance officers chair a group of their peers from different other functions, and even uh, even uh, people from the business sit on the compliance committee and really review some significant issues or talk about and help support how the compliance program itself is actually implemented throughout the organization. And, so you, I, know, you know, the, go ahead, go ahead. I'm sorry. The mandate of that uh, compliance committee is very important. Um, how it's structured, and who are the officers that sit there, and um, and it really should be a support to the compliance program, not 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 a way to create more administrative red tape or to micromanage um, decisions in the compliance program. That that, in my mind, should not ever be part of the compliance committee. It's really a matter of bringing together peers to um, clarify issues and talk about issues like resources and how different compliance, parts of the compliance program are implemented throughout the business. And I've seen that work very well. And I guess one of the, I, I've seen it work well as, as, you know, as well. And one of the issues that I think it gets at is and the Justice Department has, you know, emphasized this is how do you operationalize your program? And that requires coordination and support from the other functions like HR, you know, like yeah. uh, finance and whatnot. And I think that that the committee can be used in that way. But I, I hear you on one downside, one risk, which is you don't want the committee members to take over the committee in a sense. No, you don't want the committee to be substituting its judgment for that of the compliance officer and the compliance function because they're the, they are the ones with the subject matter expertise, and they're the ones that have the mandate to design and to manage the implementation of the program itself. And so the um, compliance committee, if it's correctly structured, would really be um, a vehicle to get all of the right uh, input into the implementation and operationalizing the program. Because um, as you know, Mike, the compliance program is multidisciplinary in nature. And so having a compliance committee with HR, legal, audit, security, IT sitting on it, 
some of the businesses is one way to make sure all the multi, the different disciplines have the right input and are involved in in what needs to be done to operationalize the committee. So, for instance, things like how um, to investigate matters coming out of the hotline um, can get discussed. Uh, some high-level issues can get discussed on that committee, and it would depend on, you know, what other networks that particular program has in place to support, you know, hotline and investigations. So right. there are things that, that can be done at that level and are very helpful to the program. Right. Um, what what are you seeing and what trends do you see in terms of, and this is always a challenge, is getting buy-in, commitment, and getting real dedication by your CEO or senior management. Um, you may be in the C-suite, but you know I see good and bad. I've seen CEOs who absolutely embrace and use the message and really are supportive. But then there are CEOs that, you know, this is one of my seven reports and, you know, they try to help out. They do a video. But how do you get the CEO, how do you get your real leaders on board in this situation? Well, You're in the C-suite. Well, you've hit on a good point, Mike, because I think one of the, the mistakes that, that a lot of compliance officers make is that they don't begin from day one to create a dialogue with their top management so that you're taking them along the journey and so they're they're involved and buying into all the pieces of the compliance program as it's rolled out. And I think by not taking the uh, leaders along for that dialogue, you know, you, you end up surprising them and, you know, no surprises. Is a, is a good policy. You end up surprising them and they're not sort of bought in because compliance program itself has some, uh, some important uh, uh, assumptions underlying it. And it's important that the top, the top execs understand, you know, for instance, the whole, the old um, adage of the compliance program is never completed. We will keep right. on improving it. And also I think, you know, to understand that it's not just rolling out the code of conduct and training, that there are other pieces that are not as simple as creating training and rolling it out. And I think having the CEO and the top execs uh, as a group become engaged with the um, compliance program to understand everything that uh, management needs to do to support the program is important from the very beginning. And, and that, to me, it goes back to one of your points early on. You said you're assuming that and that the, the CECO is reporting directly to the CEO. So there's a, an opportunity to educate and keep, and keep the CEO informed. And that seems to me to be an important part of this independent, empowered uh, CECO. Yes, it is. Um, it's uh, very important. I think if it... If the CECO has that reporting link direct to the CEO, I think they they have a, a valuable mechanism of you know updating uh, the CEO on a periodic basis of everything that's going on in the program, so the CEO understands it and and agrees and buys into everything and can give input at any at any stage. I think that's really important. Yeah, that's uh, so. In a sense, you bring them on board and you give them a vested interest in it. That's what you're saying. 
in a sense. That's right. That's yeah. right. And I think, and and we're seeing that. And the trends I'm seeing is that companies really understand uh, are are getting much better at understanding what tone at the top means, which is one of the worst, uh, I think, phrases anybody ever came up with because it's yeah, yeah I know easily misunderstood. Yeah, yeah, you never easily would. misunderstood. Right. Um, but but I do think companies are starting to, you know, as they say, get the memo. And I think it is it helps that the Justice Department, the SEC, many other regulators, and many boards are beginning to understand the significance of management supporting the compliance program and uh, all of the all of the issues we've been talking about with respect to Compliance 2.0, creating an empowered, independent uh, compliance officer, and by extension, the program itself. Yeah. So let me ask you about this is I know one of this was your one of your early battles in this sort of journey you're on. And um, in terms of the relationship between the chief compliance officers and general counsels, the chief legal officer, what's your view in I mean, where do you see that now? I mean, you absolutely have, I would say, you know, led the charge on this. And how are things going now, do you think, in terms of trends that you're seeing between the, you know, SECOs and general counsels? Well, I think even by just the recent uh, surveys that we see, some of the, some surveys that we have seen, it's very clear that there are more SECOs reporting to the CEO uh, or to the board and fewer to the general counsel. And there are fewer general counsels uh, thinking that they can just add on a title of chief compliance officer and and magically become uh, the compliance officer slash general counsel without any actual experience uh, in the field. So I think that the concept of the compliance officer being a separate profession, a separate subject matter expertise that needs to have independence has achieved really um, wide acceptance and you see this in the, clearly in the um, in the recent DOJ guidance on corporate compliance programs, where all of these elements that we've been talking about of um, independence and empowerment, line of sight, subject matter expertise, and seat at the table and resources are all, you know, if you read that that guidance, are all well understood by the Justice Department because they're certainly zeroing in on every one of these with the questions that they are asking about compliance programs. Absolutely. I mean, now they're asking questions about what are the qualifications of your compliance people mm-hmm. That's and, right. how are, and how are they compensated in comparison mm-hmm. to other professionals and are they given, you know, uh, opportunities for advancement, things like that. It's clear that the government is assuming this is a separate profession, a separate function, they use the term independent and with adequate, you know, with authority. Adequate authority, right. Yeah, um, so it's clear that they, uh, what you're talking about is implicit in what their expectation is. Mm-hmm. I think that's clear. I think in so many ways we are seeing the recognition of compliance as a separate profession, um, different than legal, um, which has the uh, separate mandate. Uh, that is important to companies, modern companies, who now uh, really want to take a look at their compliance, their ethics, their culture, 
uh, is becoming much more of a widespread understanding among gatekeepers that the compliance program needs to be independent and empowered um, rather than operated through the lens of legal. Right. So I think we're, I think we've made a lot of progress and there are a couple of, uh, I think very good uh, um, articles that have been written on this. Um, Pat Nazo wrote one on the, the uh, CICO and the GC partners at the table, which really goes through what the modern relationship of the CICO and the, GC should be. They really are partners in many things. Um, legal and HR are two of the most important uh, functional partners to compliance, and legal certainly um, right up at the top of the function that works very closely with compliance. But it's uh, a different kind of relationship than compliance being just an arm of legal, um, as some have wanted to see it. It's really an independent function that needs to be working you know, on an equal basis with, with legal and with HR and the other functions. Okay, Donna, I want, I know you're working on a, uh, a really important publication, uh, which is going to come out soon. And I wanted to give you an opportunity to provide our listeners with a preview of this work and sort of discuss the importance of it, uh, you know, in terms of the, the, uh, what we've been talking about. Mm -hmm. Right. It's the chapter in the SCCE um, manual, Complete Compliance and Ethics Manual. Um, and it's a chapter I wrote some years ago called The Essential Features of a Chief Com of a of an Effective Chief Compliance Officer Position. You know, I wrote that at request of the SCCE because of so many questions people had about how do you structure these these functions, what do you do, where should they report, and so what I did in that chapter was, you know, lay out the key, you know, rather than, you know, there's no one size fits all, but, but very much like, uh, like the federal sensing guidelines itself, we, we set out a principles-based uh, um, formula where people could look at things like empowerment, independence, line of sight, um, subject matter expertise put into an architecture of empowerment and independence. All the things that are that are covered in the um, in the justices' guidance, um, and gave some specifics on that. What we what we've done now over the summer is updated that chapter uh, to include uh, more recent survey results, case studies, uh, and uh, some independent research. All the uh, developments in the profession. Um, I'd say over the last 10 years or so. So that chapter is now updated to, to really give much more information about how you function, how you create a function and a compliance program, you know, that, that, that really is effective and which works to achieve its mandate. And when, so when do you expect this? That's the next yeah. uh, version of the SCCE manual. Okay. Um, and uh, we're just putting final touches on uh, all of the, all, all of the footnotes and the information we've packed into that for boards, gatekeepers, others that are thinking about, you know, how they structure these functions and their programs. And we want to put all of the recent information in it um, so that it was all in one place that people could look at it. 
right? I think. Well, look, I think it's uh, it's going to be terrific. I think that's a really important contribution, and I'm glad it's coming out through the SCCE because that means it'll get wide circulation um, in terms of their manual, which I know is very popular. So that's terrific. Congratulations on that. Um, I have one last question uh, um, before we you know get to the close here, but. Uh, one of the issues that kind of uh, I keep running up against is the research is clear that ethical companies with compliance cultures have lower rates of employee misconduct, and ultimately they're more profitable over and sustainable over a longer run. Mm-hmm. Is that is that a message that we, uh, you know, as supporters of the profession, are adequately? communicating are people getting that are business leaders understanding that because it seems to me to be a bit that you know compliance is not a cost compliance is a way to improve the value of the company right so how That's are we fine. doing enough on that i'm not sure that's getting incorporated to all the messaging that's going to the top management and to the board but i think it's always something that i suggest that Chief Compliance Officers put in their elevator speech when they start off on a new program. And to right. have part of their discussion with the top management and the board on all of the all the goals and the benefits of compliance. And I think that's where it can be um, can be sort of stuck in in the in the engagement with senior management and with the board. I mean yeah. and I also think that stories that come out, uh, developments on what other companies are doing, leading companies, is a very helpful way to get the information out. I mean, I was just, I'm looking at a column right now on on Novartis. I don't know, have you heard of some of the recent um, developments at Novartis? No. I was just asked to look at something as part of my um, work in the trust area. Um, my, My group in the trust area is doing a column on Novartis, so I, I read the background, and I was very impressed, and I thought, this is a perfect a topic for SECOS, because Novartis, not only did they, you know, I'm calling them a rock star now, because in 2014, they created uh, everything that that the compliance profession has been saying they need to be supported. They created a chief ethics and compliance officer position that reported directly to the CEO, and um, they they then um, just uh, this year had expanded that to include all areas of risk management and put that uh, that executive on the executive committee, which is your seat at the table and your empowerment. Um, so, you know, I think Novartis is really a rock star in how they've handled this. And then just uh, Monday. Um, the company announced that it was changing its um, incentive program to uh, to provide that all employees would be paid um, their bonus up to up to 35%, and that that bonus would be linked to their ethical behavior during the year. Um, and they have some kind. Of, they just announced on a on an analyst call, I think, uh, three three ratings. They have a one, two, and three uh, uh, star rating scheme so that meeting expectations is two, 
Number three is a role model. And number one means you don't meet expectations. So if uh, the employee were to get a one, they would not be eligible for a bonus at all. Mm. They would have to get a two or a three. And I think that's, again, that's a real, uh, that's a real best practice rock star move that we don't, you know, we don't often see. And so I read about this and I thought, oh, that's almost a holy grail. Um, when, when people ask me, you know, what are the, what are the attributes of uh, top programs or what are the best programs you know of? Um, you know, you mentioned things like that, like being able to tie companies that actually tie incentive compensation, compensation in some way and promotions to uh, ethical leadership and behavior, not just uh, bottom line dollar results, but how those results are achieved. And that would be on the wish list. And I think rare, rare are the companies that actually have gotten to the point where they've done that. Um, and when I saw that Novartis had done this, I was really impressed. I thought, yeah, well, well that's, that sounds that sounds really incredible. And uh, and you're saying they started the process from 2014. From 2014, they understood that they had to create an independent and empowered compliance function, and that's exactly what they did. And they understood that they had to have a an experienced subject matter expert in the role. They didn't just assign it to some um, law firm partner. They they basically hired. Uh, an experienced leader in the compliance uh, field who was then the chief compliance officer of Siemens and had had achieved quite a bit of, I think, uh, experience, reputation in the field. And he was, I think his name is uh, uh, Klaus Moosmeyer. And, mm-hmm. and he was then put into that role reporting directly to the CEO, which has just been expanded to include all risk management functions. So, you know, when I looked at some of the, when I looked at their compliance program uh, online, I was really impressed with uh, everything I saw. In fact, you know, I'm reading it and saying, well, I could have written that. That is what I would love to be able to write about almost every compliance program. That's what you want, the goal. So I would say I look at the what's going on at Novartis as, you know, really uh, a rock star category. We so often are writing about the GMs and the VWs and the Wells Fargo of, uh, of in the compliance uh, scandal headlines, and we don't often get. The last time I think we got to talk about somebody that was really a rock star had really done something impressive and correct, bold in the compliance area was Walmart when Jay right. Jay Jorgensen um, overhauled Walmart's uh, compliance program and entire approach. That's the last time I remember writing about, uh, you know, here's a rock star approach. And now I'm looking at uh, Novartis, and I think I'm going to have to write a column on this one because it really is something we don't often see in the field. And it really tells me that they have really taken up the concept of an independent, empowered uh, compliance officer and compliance program. And the folks that are running it now, um, have the subject matter expertise to bring into the program the concept of incentive bonus that is tied or linked to ethical behavior. And that, again, is, you know, it's almost the holy grail. It's, we don't see it often uh, in, in the field, but when we see it, it's always, it's always uh, impressive. 
And so companies that do this um, are rare. Yeah, so no, that's great, great to, to hear. And, and I'll actually uh, take a look at that and read about that because I think that's, imp that's important. Mm -hmm. Well, Donna, thanks so much for your time today. This has been a great discussion. Um, but for people who want to reach great out, talking to you, Mike. Oh well, it's it's my pleasure, Mike. But for people who want to to you and discuss any issues, or or I know you have your compliance strategist group um, and uh, provide consulting services and help people in this area. How can people uh, get in touch with you? What's the best way? I think uh, there, there's a way to get in touch with me through the website. And there's also even just an Ask a Strategist um, link that they can ask their question and, and we'll get back to them. Okay. And so, so that's, that's the website for Compliance Strategist, right? That's in right. Okay. Good. That's right. Okay, Donna. Well, thank you again so much. And uh, we appreciate it. And uh Good luck in the continuing battle, but I know you're you're on the right track, and thank you again. Thanks, Mike, and thanks for all your support of the compliance profession. Thanks again for listening to Corruption, Crime, and Compliance. Please subscribe to the podcast series. The Volkoff Law Group believes that every company should have a robust ethics and compliance program. Experience and research show that ethical companies are better performers in the global marketplace. At ethical companies, com employees believe in the company, they feel vested, and are more productive. As a result, misconduct rates are much lower and financial performance is higher. We can help you achieve these benefits through an effective ethics and compliance program. You can learn more about our commitment to effective ethics and compliance programs at our website, www.volkoflaw.com, our award-winning blog, Corruption, Crime, and Compliance, and our podcast series. You can contact me at my email address, mvolkoff at volkofflaw.com. Let us know how we can help you achieve.